Really at Jam City, we want to treat the players first and foremost. We really care about their experiences. That comes down to ad quality and what type of ads they're seeing. So we want to make sure that the performance is there. A waterfall management does take a lot of time. The big drawback is the back and forth with networks, obviously the uh, analysis behind it, and not always is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. That was Kyle. Kyle is the Senior Director of Ad Monetization from Jam City, and he uses IronSource's platform to automate his monetization and grow game revenue. That is time that is really maximized and could theoretically be a 50 to 100% to 2x increase in overall ad revenue. Theoretically, Level Play just automates a lot of that. That is a huge time sink for a lot of our teams. Want to grow like Jam City? Get the SDK on ironslc.com. That's ironslc.com. It's easy to make good choices when you have good insights, right? Well, AppSlyer's open platform provides the measurement, analytics, engagement, and fraud protection technologies you need to get the answers to all of your questions and make good choices for your business and customers. Is customer privacy important for you? Good. With AppSlyer, you can accurately measure your marketing while protecting customer privacy. Bringing in new customers is great. Getting accurate insights while protecting your customers' privacy is even better. AppSlyer's privacy-preserving measurement and cost aggregation technologies give you insights you can count on across channels, platforms, and devices. And here's something we all agree on. When it comes to the marketing, you should only pay for what works. AppSlyer's incremental lift testing makes it easy to make good choices for your marketing budget through accurate, unbiased insights into the true value of your marketing outcomes. Are you ready to start making good choices? Great. Go to appslier.com and get yourself an attribution partner you deserve. Okay, uh, welcome, welcome, <laughs> welcome, everybody. This Week in Games, episode 153, we are here to talk about crypto. All day crypto, all articles are crypto. Even those which are not about crypto will make about crypto because you guys want to hear about it. Um, Adam is cranky today. Both of Eric's are smiling. How's everybody doing? <laughs> uh, well, good in the hood from my side. Yeah, uh, actually, like, right. just came back from Canadian Thanksgiving. I know you guys were really looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, think, I actually had, like, a great weekend. Um, you know, slept like a baby, was up at a cottage, had turkey. It was great. Wait, but, um, did, but wait, then, does, thanks, does Thanksgiving, like, celebrate the thanking God that you have the United States below you? It's <laughs> protecting you <laughs> at all stages. Is that what the Thanksgiving's about? I didn't even know what the Canadian Thanksgiving is about. Did I get I my gift? Did I, I get my just, gift for Thanksgiving? Because it's just an excuse to have a turkey. Yeah. I see. I don't know. I um, but yeah, we, we, I think we have it at a much saner point in time than you Americans. Mm -hmm. Like it, you have you have Thanksgiving at the end of November, right next to Christmas. I don't understand. Like, and everybody Dude, that's has to fly why, back for both. That seems Dude, they so don't, that's why they don't call it a holiday. They call it the holidays. <laughs> Right? There's multiple holidays. That's what the whole thing's about, right? That's what makes it fun. But then it's why make holiday. them like a month month apart? Like I don't know. That's exactly right. Thanksgiving at the beginning of October is great, right? You go back to right, like it, 
it actually breaks up the fall. I think it's a good timing. I do not I agree think, with I this American thing. I think it just gives thing. another reason for the Europeans to take a month off, right? They take off August, they take <laughs> off December, November, eh, whatever, yeah. you know? Like, it's just, yeah. yeah. But is this that to do with Europe? Yeah, yeah sure. I don't know. He's just trying to drag me into this conversation, yeah, yeah. but I'm not. I'm not taking part. I don't even know what's going yeah. on. Uh, so, Adam, do you want to kick off with updates? Um, sure. So we are absolutely talking about crypto today. So I'm not going to go into um, a ton of detail, but I would definitely recommend checking out the video by Game Makers, um, specifically on NFTs, right after this podcast. Um, great video um, with the uh, Mythical Games, Glue Mobile, and Million on Mars. Um, my second update is around Halo Infinite. Um, so we were hoping to cover this last week when these videos came out, um, but I think this this is still relevant. Um, Halo Infinite looks great. I don't know if, if you've had some time to take a look at the videos, um, but it's definitely trending higher, at least from a Google Trends point of view, than Call of Duty Vanguard and Battlefield ahead of their launches. I think it's partially because, you know, Call of Duty is just having a weaker year. Battlefield is struggling because of uh, tech debt around their uh, open beta. Um, but still, Halo look, Infinite looks like it plays incredibly well. It looks like a very, very modern um, version of Halo. So I think that they really took this last year, um, that delay, and really turned it into a strong um, day one product. Um, it doesn't launch until December. Um, so we'll see. I think the, the big gimmick that they have within the, the beta was the movement. Um, the ability to kind of like zip line and pull yourself around the map, even say attaching yourself to like a vehicle or a, um, a flying craft and just pull yourself right up into it. In typical Halo fashion, constantly push um, each other outside of or, or out of vehicles as you do it. Um, so it looks like a great solid, you know, arena shooter. Um, very, very fast movement, big, loud, visceral, high recoil guns. So I uh, think things are looking pretty good for that. Yeah, I um, would just, just I, w- I want to add one quick thing is that like moving it to December is such a bad, 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 bad thing. You know, yeah. like basically this basically makes it only what everyone thought it was anyway, only for subscribers of Xbox Game Pass. Like beyond that, I don't think you're going to see much, uh, uh, you know, that many units have sold, particularly after you know, the Thanksgiving holidays we're talking about, right? I'd even just say this, it. Is, this is like an upsell to Game Pass, right? Because then they're going to they're right, come out right. day one and then they're going to turn the multiplayer free-to-play and then right. try to pull people into Game Pass using this service. Right, right, exactly. So, I mean, that's what it is. I'm going to play it because I have Game Pass, but I'm just saying, like, it's not... I, I do not think this is going to create some kind of, like, rushed upgrade to the Xbox. I just don't. I mean, but well, maybe I'm wrong. nobody we'll can, see. but... No, yeah, well, can yeah, that's, the, next upgrade that's the other problem. Yeah. All right, go ahead. Sorry. Um, Genshin Impact actually just had its best best month ever, uh, generating 342 million in uh, September. Shit. <laughs> but Genshin is just is that, is an that, absolute monster, right? Well, is that NFTs? No, that has nothing to do with <laughs> <NFTs>. real money. <laughs> this is real, real money. They're not getting paid in hair, okay? <laughs> Um, but massive kudos to you, Mihoyo. Um, I remember back, like right at launch, um, Eric Crest and I chatted about it, and like we saw that huge spike in downloads, huge spike in revenue, but just saw like a lack of endgame content as the biggest risk to this game. But like, these guys have absolutely delivered, right? Like well, two hundred million per year in dev costs to feed this beast. Probably more but, but now that they, they can see the profitability. Are they Go feeding ahead. it with content or are they just feeding it with characters? Yeah. I don't know. What do you mean? I, I haven't I mean, been 
following it. All I know is it's amazing. If you look at the data, it's like yeah. like up, down, up, down, up, down. Every time, it, must, it has to be character releases. It has to be, right? Gotcha. Yeah, stuff, so it, but... well, like, it's character releases and events that create value from the, that character collection, right? Got it. Got but this it. is probably I mean, I think... the most explicit collection RPG where they create events that like directly support specific characters to make sure that your collection is as wide as possible. Yeah. Yeah, my only real concern of the game... Well, the longer term part of it, but all, uh, but also like the uh, anime stuff. So maybe I'm wrong about anime. I'm gonna have to like concede <laughs> that anime is the thing. <laughs> no, no, no. Hold, hold your fort. Hold your fort. I, I heard. Um, I heard that Mihoyo is working on their next game, and they have two thousand developers working on it. Right, and on. it's wow. it's a sci-fi game, right? Yeah. That was like yeah, two thousand. I I like can't wait people. until um, gigantic mechs come back. Right, that is the big. The, the largest no, download audience, gigantic mechs. Stop! <laughs> stop it, dude. Mechs are so old school, dude. That does not work. They're too plotting and terrible. No. The uh, live service edition. That, dude, that hasn't been successful since the 90s, dude. Or, <laughs> I when, know. Uh, I'm mech aware. Warrior. Mech Warrior and well, I, I was Masa. an Armored Core guy. I was always Armored Core. No, no. I actually, there's, I, there's I actually a... interviewed for kind of a, a business PM position at Microsoft to help manage the FOSA thing. I didn't get it for an obvious reason that I, I could tell you, but I don't know if it's that, that interesting, but I'm glad I didn't because that shit went nowhere. <laughs> I don't know what they were doing. Um, but uh, actually, no, I will, I will share it. So what the, the, this, quickly, the story is, is that I interviewed with this guy who had been doing game development for a long, long time and had just come from out from EA. And he basically asked me the question, uh, he asked a question about Sims. He's like, what do you think of the Sims? I'm like, I really don't understand why Sims is successful. And it's got to be the most moronic statement I've ever made in my life, right? Because he clearly wanted me to like think about outside the box, right? And, 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 and so he says to me, and, and he was really direct. He's like, why would we want you to be a PM on a product if you don't understand why something like Sims, Sims is so successful, right? And so the correct answer on this is like, look, Sims is not my type of game, but I understand why girls love it and, and, and that audience loves it, right? Obviously, it was the right answer. But at the time, I was so myopic in my thinking. It was like my, a huge lesson in my life is to like, you, not, you cannot gauge what's going to be successful based upon what you think is cool. You have to pay, gauge it based upon what the consumer thinks is cool. So anyway, but even, but even was, EA didn't even think Sims was going to be successful, right? Oh, like, no, but at the time, it was already successful. Okay, sure. Yeah. And hey, why are you talking bad shit about mechs? War Robots has made what five hundred million net revenue. Yeah, it's, about that's, it's, that's more like a shooter, though. You know, like I think mechs. I mean, it has mechs. Yeah, the size right, of right. buildings. It, more of the fast pace is what I, what, what the problem <laughs> okay. with mechs are. Generally speaking, is that robots are fucking slow. But Titanfall did it well, yeah. right? Because they made. It, yeah, I mean, no, I would think people loved it. Let's not turn it's just, this podcast it's just, into. <laughs> yeah. Let's get back to NFTs. NFTs. Okay, so Focus NFTs, on NFTs. Netflix's strategy. Um, I'll, I'll just cover this briefly. We, we covered Night School acquisition last week. Um, interesting enough, now with Squid Game, they actually have an IP that's kind of based around games, right? Squid Game is actually now a top trending Roblox game. Um, whether they like it or not, that's the licensed game as well as all these you know copies and builds on on Roblox. Um, but on top of that, they've now soft launched uh, three hyper casual titles: Shooting Hoops, Teeter Up, Card Blast. 
as Netflix members within the Android app within limited countries can actually access. Um, these are actually licensed games from Rogue Games and Frosty Pop. So it actually looks like Netflix is acquiring free-to-play titles that don't necessarily have Netflix IP and then just, you know, ask the games to remove ads, uh, remove in-app purchases, and just offer it as an additional subscription benefit. And Apple Arcade obviously doing very similar things with, you know, shaky execution. Overall, I think this just feels like an experiment to me, not really their final strategy. Um, obviously, hyper-casual is a reach play, not as much of a retention play. Uh, and I think just in general, it's... It, it continues to add questions about what is their overall strategy or where are they going? Eric? Yeah, I, this feels a lot like Apple Arcade version 2, so <laughs> you're right. I think Mishka's right. This might be another trigger for me, but I'm actually talking to Mike Verdue later this month, and I'm sure, as the executive that he is, he will tell me absolutely nothing. But on the off chance that he does, perhaps I will report back. But uh, to, but I, you're right. I think there is, has to be a longer-term strategy for this. And on top of it, the reason it's not really Apple Arcade 2.0 is because it's not trying to be a standalone service and, and build a business on its own, right? And to some degree, Apple Arcade's not doing that as well. But for this, it's just basically reinforcing their existing subscription and, and all this content, I guess, can lead that way. But it's certainly, again, these, these experiences don't seem to be pushing retention, just pushing... Yeah, you know, con different types of content. So. If you can ask or do something, I'd love to know how they value content at Netflix, right? Like, okay. how do they value adding a game and then compare that against the other media content? Because if they're basically treating games like just one more tile within the Netflix app, then they still have to measure its value so they can make decisions about where to invest in the future. I'd love to know how they calculate that. Yeah, we'll see what he has to say. So Wudu bought Israeli gaming company Beachbum for $300 million. And it's a little bit unclear if it was $300 million or $500 million because we had both news uh, telling two different numbers. But anyway, for a lot of, a lot of money, uh, they bought this, this, publish, this, this company and this publisher. So I personally haven't heard about them before, but apparently they have two, two really good games, Backgammon, Lord of the Board and Spades Royale, an online space spades card game. Uh, Backgammon is 50% of their revenue and has generated over 20 million in net revenues with, a, with less than 3 million installs. And then uh, Spades Royale has generated about 15 to 16 million in revenue, in net revenue with about two and a half million installs. And they also have a gin rummy game uh, that has made about 5 million. Uh, looking at their, their, their charts, their, you know, their download charts, it's clear that uh, in the summer, they really spiked. So this year was, was very good for them. And summer was the, the highest month. And since then, the company has kind of declined to the previous download uh, numbers where it gets about 400 million downloads, uh, 400,000 downloads a month. And in terms of revenue, well, they've been doing mm, a little bit more steadier. So Backgammon grew from the beginning of the year where they were making about million a month net to about 2 million a month net, so so doubled in size, whereas they tried to clearly grow their second largest title. They kind of peaked in the uh, in the summer, March, and then declined to a previous number of making about million uh, a month. And their latest, uh, their newest game has been Gin Rummy Stars, and that has been scaling slowly to about million gross revenue a month, uh, starting from uh, about 200,000 uh, in gross revenue. So. Interesting acquisition from Voodoo because this puts them into sort of a light casual casino 
um, a second Israeli company that they acquired. So, so clearly they, they've been uh, focusing on that region. And this further diversifies their portfolio because as we have read from the news, Voodoo started a couple of years ago, they, they started focusing on casual games. And we touted that that's a good approach since, since they have been, you know, kings of hyper casual and the hyper casual is a little bit of a volatile uh, segment. They start off by opening up their own studios. They acquired one studio in the UK, and then they open up a couple other studios that were focused on casual games, one in Berlin, at least one in Montreal, I believe Montreal. Uh, that would make sense since it's a French-speaking area. And um, have been focusing on casual games, haven't really released any big casual games. I know that they have few in soft launch, and now they actually did it. So they acquired a company that has games uh, in in the market and and um, that diversifies their portfolio immediately. Personally, I think the acquisition was done a little bit too late. I think they thought that they could get to market faster with their own internal studios, and that would be a very cost-efficient way to do it. Uh, but now, since they've acquired these companies at a at a time where where you know there's a lot of froth in the market, uh, they definitely paid uh, a hefty premium for for a company that that you know is um, definitely successful. Uh, but it still like makes you know five million gross revenue a month, and they they paid three hundred to five hundred million for it. So, what do you guys think? I don't know. Based upon their yeah, last well, valuation, maybe Eric has. Well, based on their last valuation of one point four billion, that means they're giving up twenty to thirty five percent of the company. You know, for six <laughs> some small amount of revenue, it looks like like two drunks holding mm. each other up to some degree, right? What are you talking about? Two beach bums holding yeah, each both, other? Both companies are struggling. That's, that's, an ugly, that's, a, whole, that's a horrible way to put it. I, I wouldn't say it that way. <laughs> I think I can would. I, Eric, give I, us a more positive view. I'll, I'll, <laughs> Chris hates voodoo. I'll, I'll, let, me, let, me, uh, let, me, let me give my, my thoughts in a second, but I just was reminded of the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Well, I was in New York, City, <laughs> New, York, New York City one time, and, and I was on the subway, and there was a guy at like one end of the car just totally drunk. I mean, like a, like a homeless guy, like just totally drunk. <laughs> and then the other end of the car was another, like a homeless woman. And, you know, they both had, you know, kind of garbage bags full of stuff. And like the guy was just out of his mind and he just starts walking through the car and he goes over to this lady and I don't know, maybe they knew each other or whatever, but like without exchanging a word, they just start making out. Uh. And it was, <laughs> <laughs> they're both like filthy and like older and just like really unhealthy. <laughs> <laughs> so oh my god this mental image has nothing to do with the acquisition of no, beach I, bomb I, I, I know but just this is right, now, let's talk about whatever... nfts all right let's get into nfts no. <laughs> uh, for whatever reason Shit. for whatever reason the idea of two beach bums holding each other up spurred that <laughs> spurred that memory um as i might so we, and we talked about this last week my sense in the in the last episode my sense yeah. is that this was um a couple of things here right so one is beach bomb one of the founders was uh, Gigi Levy, who's you know kind of founding investor of, of Playtica, just a very well-known guy in the mobile gaming space, kind of one of the godfathers of mobile gaming. Mm -hmm. And so you know, getting him associated with your company is probably a good thing. Um, you know, I think Beach Bomb was on an upward trajectory; they were growing, so that that you know contributes to the valuation. I think the other thing here is you know, Voodoo's been buying up assets in in Israel. I think they maybe want to create like an Israeli base of operations. So why not? Why not get the sort of some of the best minds in mobile? Um, and, uh, and, and build out, uh, you know, sort of, a, a, a an Israeli, uh, a HQ. I think, you know, the other thing is like, you know, Voodoo tried to, to build from scratch 
a casual studio, right? That was the idea in Berlin, and, and two. that was two two, two years ago. Yeah, and, and that two different ones. Out, nothing's come out of that. Like no, I don't think anything's come out of either of those studios, right? And uh, you but, know, it, it it maybe they just maybe they're just realizing. Look, we I'd rather pay a premium for a team, right? That can execute, that can build, and that is that is releasing games than try to do that again. With you know, go through that exercise again of just building a team from scratch. It's very hard to do. Right. And, and, you know, we've seen, you know, it's been a couple of years. Those studios haven't produced anything to my knowledge. It, you know, maybe they just see that, look, that's just a bad strategy for us. We really need to buy existing teams that are, you know, have a, you know, have, have worked together and that are, that are, that are releasing games. So that's, that's my sense of what they're trying to do here. And, and I think it's, they need to do that because they need to, they need to, they need to diversify away from hyper casual. And I've heard mm-hmm. about a whole bunch of, of projects that, that Voodoo has, 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 you know, um, you know, embarked upon. I heard that they were trying to do like a news app at one point. Uh, I, I feel like, yeah, they should just focus on this. Get get experienced teams that can get that can build and 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 release games and just bring them inside the tent. Uh, I think one one of the one of the point what you raised. They haven't released anything from their casual studios. Uh, I think it's a challenging approach because as they set up these studios it's not only that it's a new studio that has to hire new talent that has to work together that has to ship a game those things are very difficult but you have to add the element that voodoo is a very specific company it's a hyper casual publisher so the expectations of velocity and of the of all the kpis that they're looking for are probably vastly different than what a casual mobile studio would produce so i think it's a it's a very challenging environment to enter into new genres. So it makes much more sense, as Eric, as you said, uh, just acquire an asset that is already producing and kind of get those KPIs. And now you have actually something, you know, relevant that you can, um, you can measure against. So that's, um, that's my, yeah, I'm, I'm taking back my too drunk statement, because I think that actually that uh, beach bum was doing reasonably well with what their strategy yeah. was. I just, I just think I agree with Eric and that which voodoo needs to diversify outside of hyper casual and they, yeah. But I will stick by the fact that they spent a lot of money to do it, given how much they're worth, you know. So it's it's yeah. it's giving up that much they equity should... is kind of unheard of, right? Um, from an acquisition perspective. Yeah. Well, well, talking about big acquisitions, so gaming company. Um, so let's let's start off from a little bit further away. So new video game approvals dry up in China as the internal memo shows that developers now have many red lines to avoid. Uh, the review of gaming content is getting stricter and companies will have to stay clear of long list of red lines if they want approvals in future the memo shows according to the memo seen by the post games are now art form that must highlight correct values and an accurate understanding of china's history and culture so again china's getting almost every week more and more strict uh, towards games um, bringing in these these top game companies and telling them what to do, when to do it. So definitely taking over. And regarding that China news, again, uh, we saw that gaming company Kepler raised $120 million from China's netties. Uh, the group formed with seven gaming companies, including Alpha Channel and Slowclap, plans to offer game studio founders to become co-owners, share resources and financial gains, while being in charge of their own studios. So this is a model that is, uh, for example, Sweden's Embracer. Um, So in which instead of partnering, it kind of bought companies, but allowed their founders to run them independently with full creative and operational freedom. That model has helped Embracer to become Europe's largest video game company. Uh, The challenges with this model is, is, of course, they don't have any kind of a 
central tech or central leverage that that these companies could use to grow. So it's more um, more based on the fact that there would be this sort of a goodwill knowledge sharing and everybody gains as the stock price goes up. The second challenge is if the stock price goes down, making these deals is much more difficult. So when Steelfront's stock was going up you know, almost like every day, I think it was much easier to cut a deal where they give a little bit of a cash and a lot of the uh, the upside. But if if you're if you know if the market tanks, it's going to be extremely difficult to to grow the so-called family uh, with these with these acquisitions. So that's kind of my take. But um, what do you guys think? Okay, no, no I got point. So uh, no, you got I nothing. Like we've right, covered so, this type of thing ad nauseum. <laughs> yeah, it's a ad nauseum. It's a it's a it's an interesting strategy. Uh, definitely works well when everything is is working well. But Adam, why don't you talk about how to be a great product mm -hmm. manager? Yep, that's a good way to start the day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Tell us about your job. <laughs> this isn't me saying this, okay? This is Joe Kim and Brett Nowak. <laughs> I'm no. not, you know, I'm a little bit more humble when I talk about being a PM, let's say. Um, but no, this is an excellent, I would say, one hour chat between JK and Brett Nowak from Liquid and Grit. Um, this is on JK's uh, YouTube channel, Game Makers. Um, Absolutely recommend checking it out. It goes into to mm -hmm. the philosophy of what uh, makes a great PM. Highly recommend it to anyone who works within a PM-like role. So this includes game designers, producers, since you know in reality, these three roles do have a lot of responsibility overlap, especially depending on the company. Um, it's a long chat with a lot of great points. Um, I do want to hone in on one section that I think a lot of PMs miss at. And that's really Joe's key four principles of what separates a good PM from a great PM, especially in the say zero to one phase um, or new game development. So number one is on practice, uh, better defined as say the work or discipline. Discipline being understanding the key basis of your competition, playing a shit ton of games, especially your key competition. Understanding the details of those games, not just the core loop, but all the small details but how that feeds into the whole product. For every time that I hear a PM point out to a tutorial or a UX um, issue as a key weakness in a product, I will flip a table. Versus a PM that can point out a major live operational inefficiency where content isn't as valuable as it could be if they change this element or change this game mode or adjusted the benefit that this asset provides. And as well, things like which events or game modes have the highest impact or where inflation is impacting the overall live service. Like, I think that's a good PM. Um, there's very, very big differences between somebody who can look at surface issues, which I would point to being things like tutorials and UI UX versus detailed nuance. I've played this game for a shit ton of hours and understand how the entire system works. And then, of course, you can be smart and understand how PUBG Mobile or how um, Royal, Royal Match works and the nuances, but being able to translate that nuance into actual insight for your situational context for your game, right? The biggest question here, like continually over the last say, year, how do I add a battle pass to a game, right? An executive comes in and says, we should add battle passes. Great. So a weak PM would then, you know, produce a battle pass plan that has high value, that comps well to the competition, but a strong PM would actually understand when and why battle passes are weak, what they are strong at, 
and translate the fundamentals of what a good, say, retention feature is for something that can make sense for this game. And especially would push back when a battle pass feature doesn't make sense. So then I think one of the key aspects of this point as well is how do I take the tools that I have and maximize impact for that? Um, I think on this podcast, a lot of the time we are pointing to the overall macro ideal of a product. Uh, we are pointing at, okay, this, if, if I was building that product and I had no issues, I had full, you know, the best team, I had infinite money, this is what I would do with it. That's great. Um, but the reality is, is that's really not the case for most teams. And the biggest challenge for working in a lot of game companies is trying to work with the tools you have. And I think Joe's point is around aligning your teams to get to 100% of your viable solution. Because in many cases in games, you know, focusing on that ideal, but only getting to 90% viable means far less than what you expect in impact. So of course, not everybody works for Tencent or Supercell has that high talent density, infinite production timelines. And I think the hardest part about PMing uh, is really not just finding the smartest solution, but finding the global maximum given your changing situation in the company. Um, number two is on processes, being able to enact processes within your company or in your game that helps game teams achieve oversized results. This ends up being really a major part of a PM's role alongside producers. So for example, for a cosmetic driven game, what's the process for creating ideas, producing the assets, uh, releasing and measuring um, those cosmetics? Um, how do you run business reporting meetings? How do you make sure that your processes are helping um, your team digest the important information about what's going on in the game? With many associate PMs being able to design clever processes, but the best PMs are actually able to enforce and drive these initiatives. Like your job is just absolutely not done with a PowerPoint and an email. Number three is on personality. And uh, I've seen this quite a bit with PMs as well. Um, Joe summarizes this as being a bulldog and a cockroach and ensuring that you are comfortable with rebuking your neighbor. Where weak PMs can be incredibly smart people, may understand the competition fully, might even be able to translate that into the best detailed proposal for the game, but do not have the gravitas to have uncomfortable conversation with team members when the product or team is moving in the wrong direction. Being a PM, you have to be able to catch problems early in the process and people. And I've seen too many times in meetings where artists, designers, you know, executives are directly countering best practices that a PM has established, but a PM does not stand up or ends up say sugarcoating their response so much that nobody actually digests the right approach. And lastly is on philosophies. And I think we covered that a lot in JK's philosophical deck before, but of course each PM needs to have their own philosophy of what a successful team looks like. Um, so I think like fundamentally, I, grow, I agree with Joe here and that's why I brought this up. I think it's a great video. Um, note that for most of the time, this is really not talking about day-to-day -day responsibilities of PM, forming hypotheses, analyzing data, writing specs, prioritizing feature, because I agree with Joe, like that is like, 20% of the value of a PM. That is the table stakes, but is not really what defines a great PM. Being smart, playing games is not a top PM. A great PM is one that has the discipline to turn market internal research into insights, the critical thinking skills to be able to translate those insights into what can benefit the game, and the ability to design and enforce processes all the way through. The personality to challenge those around them and a guiding philosophy of what a successful team looks like. Um, 
that's my takeaways from there. I don't know. Did you guys have a chance to, to watch that video this week? No, actually, I might actually do it now. You know what's really funny about this thing is I, I've known Adam for a few years now, and I and I think this is him screaming, right? This is Adam, the most mellow Canadian ever. Like, he's actually screaming at the microphone. You just don't know it, right? <laughs> because he's so fucking angry, and he's bringing all his personal angst and what he's doing to this article because this is articulating exactly his frustration. And so he's screaming... So he's screaming, so I'm screaming for him because he doesn't know how to scream. So that's that's all I have to add on this one. <laughs> yeah, I, this was a. I actually didn't listen to it. Um, I just now heard it, and this was a good summary, Adam. So I'll go and and, and actually watch it as soon as I have a little bit more time. Um, kind of the way you underline it, there's a lot of things that I do agree with. Like one is play games. Like I worked in, especially working in San Francisco, where you have a lot of PMs that can move from games to other kind of companies. They see gaming companies often as sort of like a mini MBA. They come in there, they get their chops, and then they move to Pinterest or Facebook or Google or you name it. And they, and they're kind of like they we call them tourists because you can clearly see that they're only here for a, for a good time, not for a long time, uh, you know, ship a game and get out of here. So that's a, that's an important part that they actually like games because that allows them to better interact with the team. Uh, the, the number two, which I do agree with, is the focus. So what they talk about the insights, that's really focus around creating those insights and sharing those insights. Because quite often I've seen also PMs venture out in, as Adam, as you said, UX, design, um, data science is a big one. Like they, you know, whatever you're comfortable with, if you're really good in math, that you suddenly you see PM just being like almost like a data scientist, uh, and just, you know, spending his, his or her time in, in Tableau or R or you name it, my MSQL and so forth. Uh, one thing that, that I think they may, may have mentioned here, maybe this goes into philosophies or processes, but to me, it's more about setting targets. So a lot of the time the team kind of tends to go into all direction at the same time, uh, trying to optimize on, 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 you know, on, on everything. Uh, but with the PM, it's really focusing on what are we trying to achieve during the next sprint? Why is this important? Breaking down big targets into smaller targets and those into even smaller one, and then focusing on hitting and, and kind of reaching those goals as the, as the, as the team goes forward through whatever phase they are, whether they're in pre-production or production or whether they're uh, going in soft launch or, or even live. Um, but yeah, the, the last part with the philosophies, like I think there's a lot of put in on top of the PMs, on, on top of the PMs, kind of like understanding what a successful team looks like and, and communicating culture and so forth. That That's almost like a, I mean, that seems like an EP role or a game director role rather than PM role. So uh, PMs are great, but, you know, you have to kind of grow to those positions. So you shouldn't expect them to be, you know, the, uh, the, the philosophical leaders of the team because uh, usually they have the least amount of time in games compared to other team members. What do you think, Surford? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's good. Thanks for the overview, Adam. I haven't, well, I haven't watched it. I mean, it's, it sounds like, I mean, not to be, uh, not to denigrate, you know, the, 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 the chat, but it's kind of generic, right? I mean, that could have applied to any PM role in any company. I don't know that no. that was specific to games, except for playing games. Well, you could just substitute games for whatever. I mean, it just felt like as a general framework for building products. My, like my, and you know, this is like from the outside because I'm not a game designer, but I feel like the two requirements that I think um, are really important for a game, a PM, um, right? And I don't think a PM should own culture. That doesn't feel like something a PM should yeah. be burdened with. Like that's, that's too high level. Like that's at the company level. 
right? Maybe if you're at a, a startup studio where the PM is a CEO, but uh, I think, you know, if I'm in, in my experience at bigger companies where you know, medium sized companies where like a PM is part of the studio and the studio is part of a bigger company, like I wouldn't expect a PM to like own culture, maybe like a specific kind of operating culture for that team, but not, you know, high level culture. And, and a lot of times I think that culture stuff is overplayed, but that's maybe a separate topic. I think for me that the, the two, the two, like the kind of two characteristics that you want to see in a PM, can, can they ship and have they shipped, Right. And do they have the will to ship? Because that's, that's actually really tough. Because it's all theoretical until you start getting players. Like, it's all theoretical yeah. until DAO goes from zero to one. And the second DAO goes from zero to one, you're held accountable for those metrics. Right? And so I've seen a lot of times PMs, they're just reluctant to ship and they want to delay and delay and delay. And you get into this endless kind of analysis or paralysis by analysis uh, state because the PM is afraid to ship. D- does the PM have the will to ship? And that's when the, when the rubber hits the road and they actually start getting metrics and, 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 and can, can sort of get a sense for whether the game is viable. Uh, do they have the will to ship and do they have the will to kill, right? Because if they don't have either of those things, you're going to be in an endless development cycle, right? And you're, you're going to be mm. arguing, um, you know, unfalsifiable claims. Like, well, no, I think yeah. if we did this thing, then, <laughs> then uh, retention would go up. And you know, this, we're missing yeah. this one feature. And my sense about free-to-play is like, the, a, a free-to-play game is is a, is a series of knobs. It's like a big control board with a bunch of different knobs, and the knobs are for like uh, you know sort of monetization. How hardcore is it? Uh, progression uh, difficulty. It's it's you know there's a bunch of different things laid out, and like a successful PM, uh, a, a successful PM tunes those knobs in such a way that the game can grow and and generate revenue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it, that's that's one thing. You know, do they have do they have the the will to ship? Do they understand core monetization? Because that to me is the biggest. Uh, that that's that that's that's the skill set ha- that has the biggest sort of like dearth in gaming is people that understand how to get a game to monetize, because ultimately that 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 is the sort of ingredient for growth. I mean, you could have the best UA team in the world if the game doesn't monetize, it's not going to grow. You're not going to be able to acquire users for it, right? Um, and so those two things: can they build uh, a sort of monetization engine? Can they build a core loop? And um, it, you know, it, c- can they build a sort of uh, a, a sort of package of gameplay that monetizes, um, and can they ship? And 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 those to me are like the two most important traits that I look for in a PM and, and want to see experience of, right? Like, have they worked on a game that has monetized well and and grew? And have they ever shipped something? And and you know, you'd be surprised at how many people haven't done, haven't haven't been a part of an organization that's done one or the other of those things. Yeah, that's true. One thing that they, based on Adam's, again, Adam's description, because we haven't watched it, uh, marketing is super important for a PM to understand. Uh, because, I mean, that that has such a big impact on all of your KPIs. Uh, so, if you know, if you don't know who's coming into your store, how you know that those are the right customers. So, um, that I would definitely press on that as being crucial for, for PMs. Yeah, and that and that's one of the that's one of the places where a tourist becomes very obvious, right? Because they'll come in and be like, "Oh, we're gonna do this product marketing. We're gonna do a big push. We're gonna get a celebrity involved. We're gonna go and do all this, blah blah blah." And like, and you tell them, "No, the way this game lives or dies is performance marketing. It's UA, and yeah. that's it. And like, we don't need to talk about any of this other stuff until we're at, you know, whatever a million a month in spend." or 2 million a month in spend where we feel comfortable in diversifying away from that. But like the sort of foundation of this is going to be UA. And if you don't get that, it's going to be hard to scale to that sort of, uh, you know, kind of that, that, that jumping off point. Let's take a little break and talk about how to boost your live ops. Now we all know that you need great people and fantastic tools to get the most out of your live games. And I'm sure you got the people part covered. 
but how fantastic your tool your tools truly are. Well, listen, if your game is made with Unity, you need to check out Beamable. Beamable is like an operating system for live games built in Unity. Beamable simplifies everything from updating your game to selling all those cool in-game items with special offers. And when it comes to live events and competitive features like leaderboards, Beamable got you covered. And Beamable is not only for your product folks, with visual prefabs for Unity and the ability to keep, you all, to keep all your server code in C-sharp means life is simpler for your programmers and most importantly, you'll get to the market faster. If much lower cost of development and efficiency of operations is your jam, then Beamable is your toast. Go to Beamable.com because Deconstructor of Fun told you so. All right, yeah. let's, let's get out of the Facebook. PM weeds here for a moment. Let's talk big picture <laughs> where I feel far more comfortable, right? Uh, but what the hell's going on over at EA? That's kind of the next thing we're talking about, right? Um, Laura Miele, uh is being promoted to COO, making her the most powerful woman in gaming or one of the most powerful. Um, so she was basically head of studio, now is promoting to COO. So similar, I think, to where John Riccatello he was promoted in the same way at the time, I believe. Blake Jorgensen, CFO, is now retiring. Now, don't worry. That's not a, Don't worry. He's going to stick around, try to find his uh, replacement. But he's almost 60 or is 60 years old. So it was just time for him to go off and go on his yachts and do what 60-year-old white people do. Um, and then Chris Bruzo is now was EVP of marketing, is becoming chief experience officer. And I don't even know what that means. But nonetheless, he's being promoted. So... Laura. So I did work with Laura at EA. I found her very, very intense, very smart. I think she has a photographic memory, if I'm recall correctly. Um, she was a chief studio officer since 2018. I believe she took over for Soderlin um, at the time. And then she was president of publishing before that. So she's doing her rounds in the C-suite, basically being groomed to be CEO. And we've been talking about this for a while on the podcast. And I've been talking about this since 2018. Uh, when she was put in charge of the studios. Um, you know, again, Blake is leaving. Not a big surprise. Uh, he's most beloved, as far as I know. He's really hands-on. He's a really nice guy. And he basically he basically created the new EA because John Riccatello and Frank Jabot stunned them into oblivion. Blake created lots more, like, efficiencies, reduced lots of spends, excess, and, and also focused the studios on smaller number of projects, which was their, their big... Uh, win over the last couple of generations. Um, so it's my kind of guess is that Laura will become CEO in the next three years. I think uh, Andrew is likely on his way out. Frankly, if I were to be honest, I thought she'd be a CEO far quicker than this. I thought it would be at this time as opposed to another few years, but we will see what happens with that. But I, I, what it does mean for EA and for those that are at EA listening and anybody who cares about EA is that I think she's far more of a pragmatic type leader, right? Where Part of what happened with Soderlin was he was kind of forcing his own creative vision into the products and then also forcing them to all use Frostbite across the entire ecosystem, which created all kinds of problems for many projects, but particularly for Bioware with everything that came out of Bioware was just a fucking train wreck. Um, so I think, you know, Laura in, in general is going to be a little bit more open to them using whatever engine is best for their games as opposed to trying to force like a centralized tech. And I don't, I think Laura's going to be 
a little bit more hands off and, you know, in terms of uh, the creative vision of the products, which we saw from the announcement that we covered a while back about Bioware becoming a single player type studio and, and foregoing this <laughs> push and move towards software as a service. Um, so that good and bad, depending on how you look at it. But I think, again, Laura will be more pragmatic. I think the moves in mobile were likely pushing pushed by Laura, if I were to guess. I don't know that for sure, but that makes sense given... You know, the CEO uh, doesn't like mobile and has never invested in mobile ever. Um, so so I think, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be double down on mobile and, and likely, uh, you know, the studios will get a little bit more flexibility in how they operate. So we'll see how her reign goes over the next few years as COO. But um, I, I do look forward to her being CEO. I think she's, she's brilliant and, and she's a gamer. You know, I knew her. She came over from Westwood, I believe, in an acquisition, which yeah. I helped do back in the day. Um, and then she worked with me in publishing for a long time and, uh, and, uh, and very smart lady. And, um, and I like her and I think she'd be a great CEO. And, uh, so your question about crypto I gaming, wanna... this has nothing to yes. do with crypto. Yes. I, I, did, I didn't know <laughs> so, that you were part of the Westward, uh, deal with the, uh, so you were the one that yeah, ruined the, the, Command the, and the, Conquer. Okay. Yeah, the two acquisitions. <laughs> yeah, my favorite game. My favorite my, my, game. My, Command and my only claim to fame in terms of acquisitions is that we did Westwood, Command and Conquer. Oh my God, I forgot the other Red Alert. Red Alert. But Come it, on, man. Red Alert. Come yes. on. Sorry, sorry, sorry. And then the second one, which actually was even more impactful to the business, was DreamWorks. We acquired DreamWorks, and that's where the Medal of Honor team came from, which created this absolutely massive franchise until it died a, a slow death. Um, actually a quick death more or less, but anyway, those are my two claims of fames at, uh, at, I was, uh, I was before dice was acquired, which would be the other big acquisition that they did. And I was after Maxis. And what's crazy was I was at EA and we were doing these acquisitions. Maxis was a complete failure, absolute failure. We acquired the studio for tons of money. This great Will White, he couldn't get out of game, right? For years and years and years until finally, I think the Sim City, one Sim City came out and then the Sims came out later and, and. You know, blew everyone away. So anyway, sorry. Couldn't ship. Couldn't ship. Couldn't ship. <laughs> what do it, Eric? You're not talking about Dream, DreamWorks Animation. The Jeffrey Katzenberg. They didn't. No, no. DreamWorks Interactive Vancouver. was a spinout of DreamWorks Studios. Yeah, based out of Vancouver. Yeah. Oh, no, no, they're based out of Metal and Up. Nothing to do with oh. DreamWorks Animation, the the movie production studio. No, it is. Yeah, it's the same. They just spun out their gaming division. Oh, okay. So they, the, had, uh, they had a gaming division. They spun it out and sold it to EA. Yeah, basically. Got who, it. Okay. Who made the uh, first Medal of Honor? Which studio was that? It was the LA studio, but it was basically DreamWorks people. Yeah, exactly. That's why. That's why I thought. I thought they were in Vancouver because all the maybe they moved up there. to Vancouver later. I don't remember, but I, I, I yeah, know. Yeah, nobody ships from LA. Started LA, was sick, <laughs> you know. Yeah. All right. Finally, NFTs, Ultima Online, and play around economies. Eric, take it. <laughs> take it home. <laughs> Yeah, so so I I hinted at this the existence of this uh, article in the lost episode, um, but uh, finally finished it. Um, took like six weeks. It's four thousand words. It was it was a doozy. I went through that, and that wow, that was a long article. Yeah. yeah. Well, so I so, I mean it didn't it didn't take me six weeks of like continuous effort, but it was just like I wrote a big chunk. I wrote the Ultima Online ch chunk, which and, and let me. Just put that aside for a second. And then I wrote, I kept rewriting the introduction because at first I was talking about loot and how that was like this kind of very interesting project and it had become really popular on Twitter. And, and you know, this was 
this was sort of like hinting at an application of games, but it wasn't really a game, and it's really just a collectible. And then loot, you know, became, you know, just not that popular anymore. Um, and so I had to kind of scrap that whole intro. Um, and then I got kind of gun-shy about rewriting uh, another intro because the space is just like moving at light speed. Um, and there's a new project every day that everyone is raving about and talking about the future of NFTs, and this is replacing art or whatever. And, and then it just, that, that project, you know, basically never gets talked about again uh, after like a week. Um, anyway, so I finally finished it. And the idea was, you know, I, I, I feel like my my belief is, and, and, you know, people may disagree, but like Ultima Online, you know, sort of ha- presents the, the, the most robust player-run economy of any game of all time. Um, and it was very noteworthy at the time. And, and just the fact that, like, you know, it's a 24-year-old game and people still play it. Uh, I mean, it, it still has, like, a, a decent amount of DAU, right? And this is, you know, $10 a month. You know, it's a subscription, right? Um but it never was really that big of a commercial success. But it, but but it, it it was very noteworthy for the fact that it brought. First of all, it was like the original kind of MMORPG. Richard Garriott coined that term. Um, it, but it had a real player, and it was like kind of totally open. There weren't a whole lot of guardrails, and that that's why it wasn't such a commercial success. Because you would you would join the game, and you'd immediately get PK'd and get frustrated, and your body would get looted of all your you know wor- worldly possessions and you know the last 20 hours you you invest in the game were gone right and so people just it, it was a very hardcore game anyway so the article is about you know i kind of i kind of uh describe the how how the player run economy worked in ultima online and then i sort of use that as an as a, an exa- as a framework for how how you might think about incorporating nfts um, into a game, right? So the Ultima Online is sort of the backdrop of like, this is how I, you know, this is, this is a very successful player-run economy, even though the game wasn't really a huge commercial success. Here's how you can sort of borrow some ideas um, it, it, uh, around building a player-run economy that incorporate NFTs. And I think, um, you know, the promise of NFTs for games, I think, is that they can facilitate the transaction of in, in-game assets in such a way that the marketplace isn't controlled or operated by the game developer, right? Because then you've got like the sort of uh, the sort of like unbiased system that can, you know, where the game developer can put its thumb on the scale if it wants to change, uh, you know, the power of different assets or, you know, different in-game items, uh, wants to sort of devalue the value of, of gold, right? Or whatever the in-game currency is because, you know, there's, there's sort of like uh, rampant inflation or whatever. Um, so, so, you know, you, you want that, that marketplace for selling these assets to be sort of independent, of the game developer, and that's what N- NFTs allow, right? Like that's the that's the that's the decentralized aspect of it. But let me get back in a in, in a minute about why why this can never be truly decentralized, right? The second, um, hey, Eric, the second Chris, way that you're, you, yeah, you got to mute your mic. <laughs> Sorry, sorry to interrupt. No, no problem. So the second way that NFTs kind of facilitate this this transaction uh, need, need to facilitate the transaction of in-game assets is is with transparency, right? So you know it's enabled across the marketplace for in-game assets. That's that's the sort of appeal of 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 crypto in the first place that you've got this total transparency around who owns what, and 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 also that allows for real-time price discovery, right? So a lot of times you know when you see games where there is a marketplace for in-game assets that exists outside the game there's no real price discovery the prices are all over the place you know people are just you know especially like on ebay or whatever or on ebay they sort of normalize a little bit but like you know in in other you know uh kind of configurations where people are just trading on like you know uh, discord or 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 whatever uh there's no real price discovery and so i think that's that's another sort of 
appealing aspect of crypto that you, you do have this sort of price discovery for these assets and you can kind of see in real time what assets are trading at. The, the third one is, is fractional ownership. So that's another sort of promise uh, that NFTs bring to games is that, you know, instead of having to sort of uh, be the richest guild or would it be the richest in-game player to afford like the biggest, you know, whatever uh, and best weapon or biggest, biggest and best, you know, housing, um, you can actually fractionalize ownership. And so people can kind of join together and pool their money and buy these assets. Uh, and that's what, you know, crypto allows for. And then that players can sell their in-game assets um, without the developer serving as a gatekeeper. And that's a little bit different from the first one. The first one is the idea is that the, the, the game developer doesn't own the marketplace. The, the, the last idea is that any given player can sell their assets without the game developer intervening in any, in any sort of way, right? And so the idea there is that, you know, I, I've, and, and this is kind of what a lot of people talk about when they talk about NFTs and games. As I've been playing, I've been sort of investing, Right. And then when I've, when I'm ready to leave the game, I've got this asset. Um, and I can just pass it on to the next, to the next player that wants to, to buy it from me. Right. Well, you know, if the game developer was able to intervene and say, no, you know, you've, you've accumulated too much stuff. We're going to block you from, from selling it. Then that'd be problematic. Right. But they could do that if they owned the marketplace, but they could also do that if they just sort of decided to do that. Well, once you sort of take these assets and you sort of, um, you, you, you push them out into a marketplace where they're sort of abstracted into this idea of the NFT, even if that connects in a very direct way to the in-game asset. You, you just reduce, you remove the, the ability for the developer to kind of intervene and prevent people from selling their stuff, mm -hmm. right? From, 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 you know, um, from, uh, you know, so, ex, ex, you know, uh, realizing the value of their asset, right? So, but, so those are all, great reasons to introduce nfts uh into a game and those are all benefits of introducing nfts uh into a game but i think there's some real design challenges with introducing nfts into a game uh you know that 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 need to be sort of accommodated in order to yield those benefits in order for those benefits um to materialize and i think there's there's three i call out kind of three design imperatives uh in the piece i think the first is that uh, is is that of nft non-permanence i think nfts have to be able to decay as a result of non-use or that you have to be able to they have to be able to be you know sort of taken from you if you die uh or if they're stolen or looted or something i think um you know that doesn't necessarily mean that the the in-game res uh, uh representation of the nft simply goes away but i think that means that the connection between between that in-game asset that 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 the NFT is anchored to, um, that that uh, that connection goes away. So the, the actual NFT, the in-game asset, could continue to exist. Obviously, if someone steals it from you, um, but I think then that the connection to the actual NFT itself um, might might evaporate, right? Uh, and and you know the re what what this would require then is that there's no hard cap on the number of NFTs. Right, that the NFT, the number of these NFTs has to be sort of unlimited, but that there is sort of a, a, a hard cap on the number that can be uh, uh, like valid at any one point in time, right? So, so you, know, you might increase the total number of NFTs as the NFT disappears because you know the the in-game item was stolen from you, right? But but you know the number of NFTs kind of stays uh, the the max number, the cap on NFTs stays constant, right? Uh, and so, what does that do? That that creates uh, and the opportunity that that or so that that creates um, that prevents uh, basically the the sort of growth uh, dependency on the economy, right? What you want to avoid with any kind of NFT based economy is a dependency on new users 
uh, you know, basically transferring value to, to elder players, to, to existing users, right? That's a Ponzi scheme. You, you want to avoid that, right? So if NFTs can decay, then the, their existence is sort of predicated on continued play from existing players, and they're kept at a constant level, but like the total number that can be minted is sort of infinite because, you know, they can decay and then a new one can be minted. Um, that, that creates incentives for new players to sort of like want to, want to develop these, uh, you know, to, to build the NFTs or to build, uh, acquire the in-game assets on their own, just through gameplay rather than buying them. And that, that ends that cycle of like, well, new players transfer money to old players and it's a big Ponzi scheme, right? Because the elder players are always being paid off by the new, new newer players, which increases the value of their NFTs, right? That's a bad outcome. And I think the non-permanence, uh, characteristic prevents that from happening. The other is derived scarcities, right? So the NFTs themselves cannot be scarce or limited, right? Um, you know, if there's, if there's, if the economy is designed to be fortified against dependency, because, you know, if, if you limit them, then, then they just grow in value over time as new players come in and then they, the, their value deflates as, as players stop coming in, right? But so what you want to do is you want to derive scarcity, meaning that to, to NFTs are always minted on the basis of access to some limited resource in the game that is not tradable. It's not ownable, right? It's something that you have to harvest. It's something that you have to, that you have to build yourself or craft yourself or harvest yourself, but that, that you can't actually own, right? That's not ownable by you. But, you know, at, but the NFT can only be minted if you have some level of access, uh, to that, to that resource. So in the, in the article, I gave the example of land and Ultima Online. You can't own land. Land just has to be empty. But if you find an empty plot of land, you can place a house. And if you own the house, then you kind of de facto own the land. But the house could decay, right? And if the house decayed, you no longer own the house because it's gone. And then that land would be up for grabs, right? So there's some, some, some sort of scarce resource in the game has to be the basis on which the NFT is minted. But that should not be ownable or tradable, right? And then the last uh, characteristic is the intrinsic utility of NFTs. And I think this is another place where a lot of games um, sort of fail to, to deliver like a, an actual like robust scalable economy. They're just creating an opportunity um, for speculation, right? So the in-game assets made available as NFTs should have some sort of intrinsic value, right? So they should present the owner with value beyond just the speculative potential of the NFT, right? So that the NFT's only value to the player is potential market appreciation and not of some in-game use case, then the NFT doesn't contribute to the in-game economy. It's just this separate collectible, right? And then you're not talking about a game economy anymore. You're talking about a collectible economy, which is driven by, you know, the need for an influx of new people um, with, a, with a fixed sort of availability of NFTs to just drive the price up. And if that happens, that's great. And if you continue to, to push new people into the game, then that doesn't really matter. But if the, if the sort of DNU uh, falls off and starts to decrease, then the value of the NFTs is going to decrease. And you don't have like a robust sort of sustainable economy. You just have a speculation game. And so I think, you know, those, those were the sort of the, the four, uh, what I felt were the, the sort of four um, benefits of bringing NFTs into, uh, into a game economy, but then the three design imperatives that are needed to sort of unlock those benefits. And I kind of laid this out against a backdrop of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a breakdown of Ultima Online's economy. So it's a long read, um, but, you know, I, that, that sort of, I, I feel like that's, that's my best interpretation of the promise of NFTs for gaming. Um, there's just, uh, you know, one last thing to, 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 to point out here. There's so much noise in the space right now. There's just so much, um, you know, buzz and, and sort of like uh, heediness. Um, it's, it can be kind of scary. I think, I think NFTs do, you know, I think they can become like a really interesting, um, you know, sort of game design uh, pillar 
Um, but I think you have to take a lot of care to do it in a way that, that present, that provides something sustainable for users and isn't just, Hey, I bet I can make money on this. Cause my sense is that like, if you get play to earn right, it's not going to be like a monthly income stream for people that treat it like a job. What, when, when you do it right, it's going to mean players love playing the game and they feel like they're investing into something long-term, but it's not going to mean, Hey, I bet I can make money playing this game. How do you, when, when you look at some of the existing games, like the last one, you know, the Doppler labs and, and um, uh, Axie infinity, like how do you, how do your design imperatives um, work in those, in those titles? Like I haven't played Axie, for example. Well, I think Axie does suffer from the problem that its economy is very much dependent on new users coming in to drive up the value of the NFTs to keep the older players uh, motivated, right? And I do think that's a problem they're going to have to figure out. Doppler Labs, I mean, you know, NBA Top Shot, it's not a game. It's a collectible. It's it's like buying NBA cards. There's no real mm -hmm. game component to that from my perspective. So I don't know. It's not a, And that was kind of my point with the loot stuff, too. I mean, people were calling it a game. I'm like, what about this as a game? There's no gameplay. It's just collecting these JPEGs. It's collecting NFTs and hoping they go up in value, right? And that to me is not sustainable because there's not, I mean, the, the total market, like if you, if you go on OpenSea or, or you talk about like the number of people that have purchased NFTs, it's still very tiny. I mean, if you're on Twitter mm -hmm. all the time, you think every single person in the world owns NFTs, right? But, you know, if you talk to, you know, real people, there's still like, there's, there's, a, there's very much a lack of awareness of what NFTs even are, right? And so like, you're not going to be able, even, even, even if like you have a successful pyramid scheme with one of these right now, it's going to dry up pretty quickly. There's like, a, there's like, you know, just not enough people that are even buying them right now. Now Coinbase just opened up like its product to buying and, and, and hold and storing NFTs. So maybe that changes things. But even then, mm -hmm. I think the market for these things is not that big. And the reason that the, the prices, you know, got to these like sort of astronomical numbers is because it's really just a lot of people that had Ethereum that wanted to sort of diversify away. They already had a lot of Ethereum. So if I've got, you know, $2 million worth of Ethereum, you know, that I originally bought for 2000 or something, why not diversify it a little bit and take a million of that and put it in, into, you know, Board Ape, Ape Yacht Club. And that makes people go crazy. They're like, oh my God, these, these, these Board Apes are worth $200,000. Well, it's, yeah, before that it was sitting in Ethereum, which, is you know is it's also is is equally not you know useful in the day-to-day -day sort of you know real world situation yeah I, I like your example because you took a game that people actually played and played a lot like i remember i was maybe 18 i had a friend who played ultima online like we were you know preparing to our sat score whatever you call it back then and he went off the off the rails like he played so much <laughs> that he didn't even get to university like i, I met him like <laughs> Five years later, and he was like a soccer player, like a fit dude, really good in math. And I saw him five years later. He was he was an alcoholic and oh, fat. I was like, I'm not playing Ultima Online. And that's when I decided I will never play World of Warcraft. To me, it was like crack Jeez. cocaine. Anyway, right. I'm going to tell uh, one quick story, and then I'll, I'll tell you my quick high-level take on NFTs. Yeah. Um, so my interview at EA with Stan McKee, who is the CFO and, and like – really well known in the gaming space, right? Really pragmatic CFO. He, he we, I was in an interview with him. He says, man, we got sued for the first time in our, in our history. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah, there's a class action lawsuit in LA from a bunch of Ultima online players that are all upset because <laughs> the game was going down. And he's like, I just didn't understand it. Right. And so he went down there and he went to go see these complaintiffs and they're all like 
super heavy, like super pale and gaunt and thin. <laughs> and they're like the typical gamer, right? He's, he's telling me the story, right? And and he's like, do, do you realize that there is an account that played the game 24 hours straight for two weeks? And he's like, how is that possible? And evidently it was a husband and wife team that were like split shifting playing this game oh, and mining and doing all the things that you did in Ultima, right? And at the time, even yeah. I, as a gamer, was like, how is that even logical for someone to do? But then, <laughs> of course, I started playing EverQuest soon after. Yeah. I know exactly why people would do that, right? And to this day, why they would do it. And it's actually, right. Eric, hats off. It's a really great example of a game, historically, that I think ultimately is not the model but is the is the impetus for people to do what NFTs are suggesting that they will do, like whether it's mining or collecting or bringing in this stuff. So it's a pretty good example. But my NFT thing is this, and I know this is going to be very controversial to those of you that are in mobile, is that mobile free-to-play sucks. That's my problem, right? Fundamentally, right? It's a terrible, terrible, terrible model, right? It is geared all towards the super whales. It is geared towards like, progression engines it's not games anymore the way you guys even talk about it you could tell it's just not a game like you're pming this thing to death to make sure you're extracting as much dollars out of people it's just it's not a healthy thing so why i got so excited about nfts and and frankly i think that nfts could solve the the fundamental problem with free-to-play is participation right participation in the economy could be much broader in, in if you build these things correctly and so that that's kind of what i'm working with a few people and trying to figure out it's like how that actually works. So if you do get like, go from like a 3% conversion up to like a 15 to 20% conversion, it's like a different world out there, right? You don't have to be so fucking predatory, predatory in your monetization practices, like in these Forex games or social casino, or even, even, even these puzzle games, right? You can actually make it a much more broad um, uh, revenue generating economy. And I think that is actually a very, 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 very positive thing for free to play. Now, that's only the promise, like how we go from fucking Axie Infinity and, and Top Shots, which is a total Ponzi scheme by definition almost, right? To that, that's what's going to be the big challenge, right? And it's, I think it's kind of like an arms race going on out there. And that's where I'm going to be participating with a few uh, consultant things. So that's all I got. You have you have fully yeah, drank the Kool Aid. The Kool Aid is completely in his system. I would love to go back to like Twig recordings of all the times that Eric is like monetize harder, <laughs> core games only, whales are yeah. what matters. But now he's he's gone full altruistic. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah, it. All all it took to be an advisor at a company with if you, NFTs. If you want and Eric to turn his boat, hire him as a consultant. We're good to go. <laughs> Apple Arcade should have hired Eric. <laughs> Super good. <laughs> no, I, just, I I was gonna say we, we in the in the in the lost episode we were also talking about how there's a threat I think that some of these projects that I don't feel like are sustainable and that really are just like quick turnaround pump and dumps just totally you know stain the notion of NFTs in a way that you know it takes like five to ten years for it to it to sort of make a resurgence right like what you don't want to do is you don't want to you don't want to completely crater the idea through just like just 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 sort of like totally rapacious exploitation right like you don't want to see these projects burn so many people that you know they're the general sentiment amongst gamers or amongst whoever the sort of like tech progressive you know uh, first adopters is like no way never again 
right? You know, you, you, you want to make sure that gets avoided. And so, like, I'm kind of wary of, of where things are going right now because I don't see a lot of games and projects being built with that kind of sustainability in mind. It's just like, hey, I bet if I do NFTs, I can get a lot of money right now from VCs. Yeah. Or, hey, I bet I can pump up the value of these assets and then my treasury's worth a lot of money and then I can, whatever, flip it. Like, it just feels like there's, there's, there's very little um care being being paid to, to that sustainability which could ultimately burn consumers in a way that sort of puts this whole concept on the shelf for a couple of years and I, I i do worry about so that the, in terms of your article you talked a lot about non-permanence um that felt like the one part that was less intuitive to me like the, the overall article i thought was excellent the overall focus on daily new users and making sure that that is not yeah. the key driver for the value in your nfts um but on non-permanence why is that specifically solving that issue? Because if you've got the NFTs tied to in 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 game resources that are scarce, um, if you don't have non permanence, if you don't have the ability, and I'm not saying that that you know this has to necessarily be like um, permadeath, right? But I'm saying that like if there's not some sort of impetus to keep you in the game, to keep you maintaining these 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 assets that are built on top of these scarce resources then they're just going to all get like you know a after some amount of time they're all going to be harvested and you're going to have people just sitting on them right people that don't play the game anymore but they're sitting on these they, they're sitting on this nft because well there are new players coming in and, it, and it's just sort of like accelerating that sort of like that value growth or that appreciation of the asset what you want to see is turnover in these things like the ability for them to turn over because a that keeps new players motivated it's like well i see like a lot of really rich players but i know that some percentage of them every month are going to churn out of the game and their assets are going to be up for grabs and so i don't necessarily need to pay to buy in because i could just you know be be ready to sort of claim one of these resources that gets freed up when their nft uh gets released because they stop playing but then, but then right? the, and it the also prevents that yeah blockchain probably or, or ethereum wouldn't be the right technology to do that right because if if i own an address on the blockchain like i own this this keychain there is no permadeath in stealing from other players right like you you can't steal block or you can't chain or you sorry you, you can't steal bitcoin from my wallet um within a game itself right well, no exactly but that's exactly the point right you'd still have that you'd, you'd still have that that token mm -hmm. But the token wouldn't be worth anything because that the connection between between the token and the in-game resource would be severed, mm -hmm. right? So the in-game representation of that token would disappear; it would go away, or it would no longer be yours. So the connection got severed between that resource and the token. So you still have the token, but again, the tokens are not limited. There's there's no max cap on the number of tokens, so that token just becomes worth zero, and everybody kind of knows it. They're like, well, that token still exists, but I wouldn't buy it for anything because it's not connected to the in-game resource. Now a new NFT gets printed because that plot of land opens up, mm -hmm. or that that whatever that resource is that that those raw logs get opened up i can take them and then i can make something out of them a new nft gets minted and everybody knows okay that's connected to the in-game resource so i want to buy that because if i buy that i buy the in-game resource so that's that's the idea yeah. there and so that connection is that that connection is very important because if you sever that connection then you've just got this market of stuff that's totally disconnected from gameplay that becomes a playground for speculation and so the, do the non-permanents have to come in the form of other players like you actively have to play the game or does the non-permanence come from say a developer led thing like in if if you look at ultima online and you compare that to magic the gathering right non-permanence could come in from issuing of cards and then adjusting the sets right that certain cards are yeah. in favor or in the standard mode versus not versus i think you're talking much more about non-permanence 
from a you have to actually engage in the game in order to get the value um, perspective. Does that make sense? Well, no, I don't think it, I don't think it has to be. It could be that you get murdered or that someone steals your stuff and 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 it's no longer yours anymore. Um, but then that would still sever that that connection, right? I think that, you know this, this it's hard to like give you know hard and fast like game design rules because you have to think about every type of game that can be implemented yeah. to. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to say that it, it's a game design choice. You can make that choice to fit the game however it fits. I use the example in Ultima Online of housing, right? You can't just sit on a house knowing that it's going to appreciate and you'll sell it on eBay if, if, for three months and more than it's worth, for more than it's worth now. Yeah. Because if you don't log in and, and refresh the house, it's going to disappear. So that was the example I used. But it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be connected. You know, I, I think it should be connected to gameplay and engagement. But if it's not, it, it could, it could, you can implement it in any other way. That You just have to make sure that there's some connection to it, a scarce but non-tradable or ownable in-game resource and the actual NFT. That, that, that those are like one unit together. And if you lose either one of those, then it's, it, it, it doesn't really exist. And anymore. the risk is that if you don't do this, like in the case of the current market, um, that you're going to just create these big bubbles that eventually pop and burn a lot of yeah. bubbles. Yeah. Right. All right, we've covered NFT, delivered to the user base. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep sending the feedback because we do listen. Like now, we listened, gave you all the NFT stuff. Subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the newsletter. Join the banner on DOF Slack channel. The crypto channel is going hot. They are waiting for this episode. Love you guys. <laughs> we appreciate you guys. Signing out. Uh...